today is the day, the first day of our study through, all the way through, the book of Daniel. We will cover the whole thing. Uh, however, you will have to wait until September, uh, until September for the second half. Uh, we will cover from now until uh, April, Easter Sunday. We will end with Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel in the lion's den. So uh, it will be a, a f very enlightening time. I think a, a really excellent dovetail to our walk through Revelation last year or the last year and a half. Uh, and so today, let us kick off the book of Daniel. The title of the sermon is Taken. Taken. Yes, like the movie with Liam Neeson. Taken except Liam Neeson isn't in it. So, uh, that is the title of the sermon. Now, as we get into the book of Daniel, in any really Old Testament book, as you're maybe in your, through the Bible in a year, reading plans or whatever you may have, it's really important that you remember a few things. Uh, first, Romans 15.4 is very instructive in this regard. Let's hear it, Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days... Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Think about that as you read the Old Testament. So, so they, they say, the saying goes, it happened to them, so Daniel, it, they lived this. This was their life in a very real and horrific, at times, sense. This was their life. It happened to them, but it was written down for who? For us, so that we might have instruction, so that we might have endurance, and ultimately, hope, which is what we all, in various ways, for different reasons, need desperately this morning. We need hope, and God intends to give it to you and to us through the Scriptures, particularly as we work through the Old Testament. And what we want to avoid, what, we want, what we're going to avoid in this series is we're going to avoid a few errors. First, we're going to avoid the, the error of moralizing the story, simply, I should say, or merely moralizing the story. And here's what this means. Uh, okay, here's the story, Daniel and the lion's den. He didn't uh, worship the, the image. He, he got thrown into the lion's den. Be like Daniel. You see, that's just mo simply moralizing the story. Uh, David and Goliath. David went and fought Goliath. Be like David. That's just simply moralizing it. That's not entirely wrong. All right? That's not entirely wrong. There is a point to the story. That is true. That is one way. But if we stop there, or if we even just chiefly, if that's all we see, and that's how most of us are trained to read, if that's all we see, we've missed something really, really important. Namely, we've missed the gospel. We've missed Jesus. We've unknowingly added more law Oh, for God to be happy with me, I need to do, you see? I need to be like, you, and, and we add law unintentionally. 
if we miss the gospel. And so we're going to do with this, as we've done in times past through the, through the Old Testament, is Jesus went with his disciples on the road to Emmaus and began with Moses and all the prophets. He showed them all the things concerning himself that are in there. We're going to do that as well. We're going to see the threads of the gospel or how Daniel points to or prepares for, prepares us for the coming of Jesus and is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And so we don't want to merely moralize, although there's a fair amount of that that's not, all, that's not bad entirely. That just can't be all we do, or then it does become bad. And we don't want to miss Christ. We want to see the glory of God. If we come out simply saying, be like Daniel, we'll have missed it. We'll have missed it. We have to look past Daniel to Daniel's God. And so that's what we hope to do this morning and in our time together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the psalmist says, As the deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul pants for you, thirsts for you, the living God. I pray that we would thirst for you this morning. I pray you would create a thirst that will only be satisfied in Christ for all the listeners this morning. I pray if that thirst has waned or if the flame has, has gone down to a spark, then we also know you will not quench the smoking flax. You will not break the bruised reed. Would you bind up the weary this morning and stir their souls to faithfulness as we live as exiles in this world? Would you help us to see the hope that this scripture has for us in Christ? And then, Father, I do want to pray for uh, Valley Isle Fellowship, our sister church, and Pastor Steve Kaneshiro. Uh, I also want to pray for Waiehu Community Church Plant. And I just pray that you would fill both of those churches with your love, with uh, an abundance of truthful uh, and rich fellowship. I pray that they would be linked together as one body and that in both congregations you would do an incredible work uh, in Wailuku, Waihu, Waihe, and beyond. And so would you bless the preaching of the gospel there and here for the glory of, of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, number one, I have three points. Number one, be careful what you wish for. Number one, be careful what you wish for. Let me give you some context, some historical background setting, because the context is very important. It sets the stage for us to understand the message of Daniel. Now, Daniel, as a book, can be easily broken down into two halves. Chapters 1 through 6 is the famous stories that most of us all know, the, the fire and the lion's den and the dreams and these types of things. These famous stories are the first half, chapters 1 through 6. Chapters 7 through 12 is the last half that most of us get into, maybe chapter 7. I have no clue what's going on anymore, and, and we kind of just fall off the track, and I don't know what it means, and it's kind of like Revelation, I just, whatever, right, so, uh, and so that's the last half of the book, chapter 7 through 12, the two halves. Now, there's, of course, more to say by way of structure, but we'll address that as we work in 
to the book. What I want to do is we left off in the book of Exodus. So the last Old Testament series we were in, we went through Genesis in 2015, and then more recently, we went through the entire book of Exodus. And what I want to do is catch us up in the storyline. You ready? I want to go from Exodus to Daniel and give you the history, all right? That's what we're going to do. So, and it's going to be fast, so I'm going to leave a lot of stuff out, but you'll get the flow, namely the kings. That's what we're going to look at, okay? So we left off Exodus with God dwelling for the first time since the Garden of Eden. You remember the pinnacle, the final, the third climax of the book of Exodus is God comes and dwells in the tabernacle for the first time since the Garden of Eden. And now his people, they go on a, and they begin to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You can read about in the book of Numbers. Eventually, Joshua would come up. He would lead the people in the conquest to the land of Canaan. But they didn't do all that God commanded, did they? They left some remnants of the land, some of the inhabitants of the land, and increasingly Israel, the nation now, is lured back into idolatry, back into a form of slavery, and ultimately covenant unfaithfulness. That's the book of Judges. Covenant unfaithfulness. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, the book of Judges says, again and again. Eventually, the people of Israel, they start to look at the surrounding nations around them, and they see all these nations have something we don't, namely a king. And so they cry out to God. They cry out to Samuel the prophet in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8. You'll find this. They cry out say, we want a king. We want to be like the nations around us, a king who will lead over us and go into battle before us. And we want a king. Give us a king. See, they were not satisfied with God himself as their king. They wanted a human king. And so God told Samuel the prophet and the judge to warn them against this. Warn them what would happen when a king was on the throne. And yet they, persist, they persisted and their wish was granted. Be careful what you wish for. He gave it to them. He gave them a king. And what follows is a very long and a very sad story. That almost sounds like a broken record. First king of Israel was Saul. He started off good and he did what most kings and men with power do. He turned bad by the end. And then we had David, the famous David, who similarly was good with some stumbles, and yet he rose again. David was a good king. He was the only good king from start to finish while the nation of Israel was a united kingdom. He was followed by his son Solomon. Solomon outdid his dad in every way. He had 700 wives 300 concubines and taxed the people of Israel terribly. Solomon did build the temple of God. God permitted him to build him a temple. And yet Solomon ended on an idolatrous note, we could say. All of the wives of Solomon turned his heart, it says. Ultimately, his heart was turned to idolatry because his heart was to all these things around him. So therefore, God took away the kingdom from Solomon. He gave it. He said, after Solomon, after you die, I am going to take the kingdom away from you. I'm going to give it to your servant, not your son. Rehoboam was the heir to the throne. I'm not going to give him the kingdom. I'm going to give your servant 
Jeroboam, the kingdom. And so he ripped away ten tribes, left one tribe, Judah, for the sake of his servant David. And now the kingdom is divided. Israel became a divided kingdom. The southern kingdom, so if we're like in Maui, you look at like a map of Maui, right? We're like central Maui here. You have uh, central Maui and then you have Haleakala over here and then west Maui here. If you go south, there's Kihei. All of P- Kihei people, south side, right? That'd be like the southern kingdom, Kihei Wailea, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. They had 10 tribes there. The northern kingdom, you think of North Shore, boo, North Shore, yay, Wailea, they're good, they're faithful, right? Uh, and so, we want to live in Wailea, no, right? But that was the idea. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Those who, who recognized Rehoboam, Solomon's son, as their king, were part of Judah, in the south, those who didn't, they said maybe of Rehoboam, not my king, they went with Jeroboam to his kingdom, to the kingdom of Israel. You can read about all of this in Kings and Chronicles. What's important for us to know is the southern kingdom would generally be wicked, the southern kingdom of Israel. They were generally wicked. They had a total of 19 kings after Solomon, all of them were evil. Nineteen kings, all of them were evil. God eventually sent them into exile for their idolatry to Assyria. The northern kingdom of Judah fared better. They had a total of 20 kings. How many were good? Five. There was five good ones before God sent them into exile to Babylon. This brings us to verse 1, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of Jehoiakim. Now, who is this guy? We need to know know who this is. We also need to know the the, the deportation to Babylon happened in three stages. Babylon didn't just come all at once and take everybody all at once. It happened in three stages. Jehoiakim was the first stage. Now, Jehoiakim, this was not his birth name. His birth name was Eliakim. Jehoiakim, was, his name was changed from Egypt. And so what you have in Israel and uh, Judah is a jockeying for power in the region. You have Egypt who's coming up. They're trying to gain influence. They're trying to gain control. They're trying to assert their will in the region. Simultaneously, Babylon is coming in. And they're trying to gain influence in, the, in this region. Similar today, if we were to go to 2020 today, in modern-day Iran, Iran is jockeying for position and influence in Iraq. And likewise, other countries, namely the U.S., also jockeying for influence for their own purposes. This happens today. It happened back then. And so you have Israel caught in the middle between Egypt and Babylon. And Egypt ultimately took Judah first and set up Eliakim, who was a vassal king of Egypt. And eventually he sold out and God sent him to Babylon. And so here we have Jehoiakim. He is the first of the deportation uh, or exportation kings that would be taken captive into exile. His son, Jehoiakim's son was set up as a vassal king to rule on behalf of Babylon. And so now we're all caught up to speed, and we start where we began. Be careful 
what you wish for. See, Israel's discontentment with God as their king, unbeknownst to them, because they were not satisfied with God as their king, set them on a trajectory of pain and suffering. Out of 39 kings total in their history, they only had six good ones. Just think about that. That's astonishing. Think about how much time elapsed there. 39 kings, only six good ones. The rest led them into idolatry and wickedness. And it's ultimately what led them to being cast out of the land that God had prepared and given to them. Let's pause and do some application. Because we still haven't learned 2,600 years later to be satisfied, to be content with what God has given us. We have to stop looking at other people's fields, stop looking at other pastures. We need to take a good, hard look at our own pasture. Amen? Ooh, I didn't hear a strong amen on that one. If it hurts, praise God, right? We need to take a good, hard look at our own field, our own pasture. Let's get even more detailed at work. What is your workplace like? Be content with where God has placed you. Work hard. Work for the glory of Christ. That doesn't mean you don't look elsewhere. But don't let discontentment be your primary motive to seek other employment, you see? Or else you won't be happy there either. Don't work out of a motive of discontentment. Work out of a motive of, I want to serve Jesus with all that I have, the best of my ability. If I can get more resources for his kingdom, then so be it. Lead me, Lord. You see, that can transform everything because you're going to be faithful where you are or where he takes you. Work hard at work. Be content where God has placed you. Maybe at school, our students, Man, I don't like school. I don't want to go to school. School's for chumps. Work hard at school. Use the mind God has given you. Be careful what you wish for. Enjoy the years now of limited responsibility, of being able to do homework. A day will come, and it will come, when you wish for the simplicities of childhood and school. And you long for those days, or you remember those, those days, those are the best years, perhaps, for some people of their lives, or at least very memorable years. Work hard at school. At home, maybe you say, I wish my parents did this, or I wish my parents would let me go out and do this, or curfew, or whatever it is that I want to do. Be careful what you wish for. At home, be thankful for the parents God gave you, for better Or for worse, all parents are ultimately just doing the best that they can. Be thankful for your parents. Maybe in marriage, why can't my spouse be like this or like that? Or or, I wish they would do this or stop doing that. Or uh, these types of things with our children, with our grandchildren, with our church and various ministries. Look, the grass might not be as green as it seems from your vantage point. Or maybe it is greener on the other side of the fence, but you're allergic to that grass. And God knows that. And he has you exactly where he needs you to be. We need to hear this, KBC. Discontentment with what 
or where God has placed you can lead to many sins, and it can rob you of present joys all around you. So let me ask you, what is it in your life or what area of your life are you struggling with discontentment? In all those cases I brought up, work, home, children, school, marriage, grandchildren, whatever it is, in all those cases, do you notice who the focus is not on? You know who the focus is not on? When we are discontent, see, this is another symptom of discontentment is we mislabel the problem. We want to blame others for our own unhappiness. If only my work, my boss, my spouse, my school were different, if only my circumstances were different, then I would be happy. But no, see, the problem is often staring us right in the mirror, isn't it? Truly, we need to hear this to be content in Christ's provision for us. And this is what Paul had to learn. This is what Israel would have to learn. And they learned it in painful lessons. Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We also see in this passage this succession of kings, 39 of them. We see the danger of failing to repent from sin. See, God sent prophets, namely Isaiah, Jeremiah, others throughout the time. He sent prophets to his people saying, turn, turn, turn back to God. Come back to me. Come back to calling his people back to me. And they wouldn't listen. We see that failing to repent from sin can wreak havoc on peoples and on lives. It's a Incredible message right in the first verse of Daniel 1. Repent from sin. Don't toy with it. God will go to great lengths to free his people from it. It's number one, be careful what you wish for. Number two, be faithful in exile. Be faithful in exile. Let's read verses 3 through 7 of Daniel chapter 1. We're going to come back to verse 2. So uh, we're going to go to verse 3 through 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the time, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. We'll get into their names in a minute. Now, what ensues in this passage, so now here comes King Nebuchadnezzar conquering Israel, conquering Judah, 
And what ensues is a selection of these youths. They were probably not Hebrew boys. They were probably not young children. They were probably uh, older teenagers, these youths. Daniel's going to serve a long time in captivity, almost his whole life, 70-plus years in exile he's going to spend. But what, what happens now is really what, what amounts to a highly effective re-identification program, also known as brainwashing. What happened is the conquering, invading army would take the best and the brightest. They would bring them into their courts. They would feed them their food. They would give them the best of the education. They would rename them so that ultimately they would serve the purposes of Babylon. There was one goal in the new education, the new foods, the new names, taking them to a new location. There was one singular goal, to make them Babylonian. That was the goal. And they changed their identity, their very names to serve these purposes. Daniel was renamed his name. So each of these names, if you wonder, why is this in the text? Each of these names, the original names, has a name that points to the God of Israel, and they are going to be replaced, re-identified with a name that points to the gods of Babylon. Check this out. Daniel's name means God is my judge. It would be changed to Belteshazzar, which literally means, O lady, protect the king. And this lady was the wife of the false god, Bel. Hananiah, his name, means Yahweh is gracious. It would be changed to Shadrach which means servant of Aku. Mishael means who is what God is, or who is what Yahweh is. That's a way of saying who is like Yahweh, who is like God, nobody. His name would be changed to Meshach. That means not who is like Yahweh, who is like Aku. And then Azariah. Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. Abednego, his Babylonian name, meant servant of Nabu. In each and every one of these instances, the Babylonians are not just renaming them to get them to serve for their purposes. They are simultaneously exerting their domination. They are showing in every way their gods are superior to the gods of Israel. And these four young men were surrounded. Then they were just plunged into temptation. But see, temptation for them initially wasn't the hard life, was it? Initially, temptation for them was pleasure, not persecution. It was the allurement of luxury, of affluence, not pain. See, initially for them, they're brought out the best foods, the best location, the best living, the best friends, the best education. They were sent to the top of the line private school in Babylon, all with the, with the intended desire to show, wow, look at the glory and might of Babylon. I can dig this. That's what the hope was to show the superiority of what their gods can provide. 
Every single ancient writer, anywhere that Babylon pops up outside of the biblical record, so if you were to look outside of the Bible, uh, ancient recordings or mentions of Babylon, it is always with the utmost awe and reverence. This was no small kingdom. The city itself covered 2,200 acres in the ancient world. That's astonishing. They had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging towers of Babel. They were amazing. They were mechanical before there was even electricity. They had these things self-automated watering. They had a whole sprinkler system in there. This was no small kingdom. The glories of Babylon were incredible. And these men were plunged in, these young men were plunged in headlong into the best of the best. The same issues are at stake today. In 2020, for us, see, the world will try to give you a new name. It will try to erase the work that God has done in you and eliminate any trace of it in your life. When you tell people in your initial conversion, for those maybe who were converted at an older age or later in life, when you, when you went back and told people that you started following Jesus, many people will do what? They're going to scoff at you. Roll their eyes. Sure, you changed. Okay. Sure, you're different. Okay, you're doing the Christian thing. Whatever. See how long that lasts. See, they are trying to eliminate or wipe from memory or cast doubt or throw shade on, if you will, what God has done in your life. They're trying to show or change your new identity, but nothing can alter your identity in Christ. As a Christian, your name is, as it were, etched with an iron pin in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing can take it away. The scriptures say the gift and calling of God are irrevocable. Notice what the title of the book is. It's not the book of Belteshazzar, is it? Try though they may be to change his name. It's not the book of Belteshazzar. It's the book of Daniel. Because even after 70 years of exile and captivity, he didn't forget who he was or who his God was. See, KBC, as followers of Christ, The scriptures say we are also exiles, citizens of another kingdom. This world is not our home. We are passing through, and in this world, we are surrounded by temptations for pleasure, aren't we? At every turn, you are tempted to compromise your faith, and I want to encourage you, don't ever lose your identity. Don't ever give it up. Don't ever be silent about it. Don't change it. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. You belong to God. You belong to God. Let that be the flag that flies over your life more than anything else. Not my identity is I'm a pastor. Not that my identity is I'm a businessman. Not that I'm a police officer. I'm a firefighter. I'm whatever. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. That's not your ultimate identity. Your ultimate identity is in Christ. You belong to him. Hear the words of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. He opens his letter to the elect exiles. 
verse 17, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, pause. What does Daniel's name mean? God is judge. And now Peter's about to talk about exile. There is no doubt that Peter is thinking about Daniel. John would do the same thing in the Revelation, if you remember. Peter says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear. He's talking to Christians throughout the time of your exile. We ought to walk with a holy, reverential fear in this time, beloved. Honor God and be faithful in exile. That's number two. Be faithful in exile. We'll flesh that out in the weeks and months to come more. And number three, believe in God. Believe in God. Let's go back to verse two. We're going to end by going backwards to verse two. That one we skipped on purpose. Verse 2, Daniel chapter 1. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. I would suggest this verse sets the stage for the message of the book. The Lord gave him into his hand. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. See, the book of Daniel is not about Daniel. It's not about his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. Ultimately, the book of Daniel is about God. It's about who God is. See, when we ended Exodus, it was really interesting because we saw a battle of gods, didn't we? Remember, Pharaoh thought he was a god in Egypt, and Pharaoh asked the question of Moses, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And God would introduce himself in stunning 3D, surround sound, full immersion. Through ten plagues, God dominated, just laid waste to Egypt so that Egypt would know, and all the nations would know, oh, that's who Yahweh is. Let me listen to him. But, but do you know who else defeated Egypt? Babylon. Babylon would defeat Egypt as well. So in this battle of the gods, Yahweh versus Egypt... We, go, we, we do the playoffs, right? Playoffs are happening. NFL playoffs right now, right? Egypt versus Yahweh. Yahweh wins. Babylon versus Egypt. Babylon wins. Babylon versus Yahweh. Who wins? You see, what happens when the God of Israel goes toe-to-toe with the gods of Babylon? And he loses. Think about that. And he loses. See, in the ancient world, armies would go out to battle, and they would carry with it their technology and their horses and their chariots, and they'd have these massive armies, but they would also carry with them something else. They would carry their 
gods. And Israel would carry the Ark of the Covenant out to battle. And they, one side would pray and call out to their gods and ask them for victory. And the other side would pray and call out to their gods and ask them for victory. And whoever won had the stronger God, was a superior God. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. This is why he's taking the vessels from the temple. He's establishing superiority. And so they would go in, after they were victorious, they would enter the holy places, the shrines, the temples. They would pillage them. They would take the gods captive. It was a sign, a symbol. You have been utterly routed and defeated. They come into the God of Israel. They enter the temple, and they don't see an image because there is no image of God. They shall not make any graven images. And so they take other things, gold vessels and pots and plates and all these different things that they would use for worship. And they take those things instead, and they bring them back into Babylon, into the temple or seat of Nebuchadnezzar, and there they show all people whose God is superior, Babylon. Worship him. You see? He's openly dominating the God of Israel. So the question comes that any Israelite was feeling, and we have to feel the tension in the text. Is he superior? He lost. Should we worship Yahweh? He couldn't protect us. Is there God stronger? And did our God forsake us because of our sin? Now, those of you who know the Bible history, you know the prophets already said God's going to send forth for Babylon and you're going to be conquered. But in the moment, how do you really know? How do you really know, right? It's easy if I, get, if I lose in something, maybe if I were to arm wrestle somebody and, and you know, I'm thinking I'm going to win and everybody else thinks I'm going to win and then, and then I lose. Oh, I, I let them win. I let them win. Is that what Yahweh's doing? How do you know? How do you know? How does Babylon know? Because by every measurable metric, he lost. You see? So Israel's wondering, wrestling, is their God stronger? And did our God forsake us? Those are the questions that are ringing in their ear. There's no doubt the Babylonians thought themselves to be superior. What of Israel? In the book of Daniel, the answer is going to be a resounding no. He's not superior. Yahweh reigns supreme over nations, and everybody's going to know it. Israel and Nebuchadnezzar and the Persian Empire, when they come, all of them will know who's in control. And this is little key is buried in verse 2 in the words, and the Lord gave. God didn't lose. He let them take Israel. It was like the, it was like the, the little character, for those who have seen the movie The Incredibles. Anybody seen The Incredibles? Pixar? Little character Dash, he's got super speed. He runs really fast and, and it opens up and he's at a little track meet and he's, he's running super fast. Or, or no, he starts out slow and everybody's beating him and his parents are like, go faster, faster, faster. 
and he runs out super fast in front of everybody, and they say, no, 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 slow down, let him, let him, make it look like it's close. And so, okay, okay, okay. And, and he goes and he wins. It's like Dash and the Incredibles, or, or it's like the rumble in the jumble, jungle in 1974 with George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. The rope-a-dope is Muhammad Ali's on the ropes in the eighth round, 15 seconds left. George Foreman's going to town, and he's just wearing himself down. And Muhammad Ali just pop. Game over. He wins. God didn't lose. God doesn't lose. And when it looks like he's against the ropes, it's part of the plan because he's always doing more than meets the eye. And our role is to trust and believe in him. It is worth considering long and often God's hand in your situation. Think about your present distress. All of us have different ones. It is worth considering long and hard and often God's hand in your present situation. It's also worth noting the corporate suffering of God's people. Think about this. These young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, their Hebrew names, these young ones weren't the reason why God sent Israel into exile. They weren't the ones calling the shots. They didn't necessarily disobey Jeremiah and the prophets, but they suffer the consequences of it. See, we need to consider that we don't always suffer because you did something wrong. Sometimes we suffer because somebody else did something wrong, and it's impacting you. And guess what? God is still in control. God is putting Daniel and his friends exactly where he wants them to be. Think about this. We just got done celebrating the Christmas, right? The major, one of the major Christian holidays of the, new, of the year, Christmas and Easter, the part one, part two, beginning, end, or keep beginning, how you say it, right? Christmas. Think about Christmas. Who came to see Jesus the night he was born? Shepherds. But in another fairly short period of time, probably two years or less, some other, some other people came to see Jesus, didn't they? Who were they? Do you remember? Magi, wise men from the east, pagan people, pagan astrologers. They said they saw his star. Let me ask you something. Where do you think these magi learned about a prophecy of a Messiah being born in Bethlehem? Where do you think they learned to look in the stars for something that would happen that would indicate a Messiah was born? Where do you think they heard that? These pagans. Most scholars would suggest it was from when Daniel went into exile. When the Hebrews were amongst the Babylonians and their, they taught them their scriptures and their ideas were exchanged and that was passed on to the Persians and on and on. And ultimately, now 600 years later, these pagan astrologers are coming to worship King who? Jesus. 
You see, in God's kindness, he uses exile, he uses suffering, he uses a number of tools to get the gospel message where it needs to be so that it's clear to all people that Yahweh is not just Israel's king. He is not just Israel's redeemer. He is a redeemer for all peoples, all nations, all continents and tongues and languages, and he will be worshipped by all. Praise God. See, the time would come again. This was not the only time when it looked like God lost. The time would come again when it looked like God lost. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he took his last breath, it looked like God lost. By every measurable metric. They were just as stunned then as Daniel and Israel would have been with Babylon. But we know the story. We don't have to wait to see how it ends, do we? They did. We don't. See, three days later, there in that tomb, his heart began to beat. The debt for our sin paid. God's wrath satisfied, and Christ rose from the dead victorious, and now he rules and reigns over all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And so Daniel's, you could say, prayer came true. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. And Christ affirms confirms and sustains that blessing till the end of the age, and he is coming again for all who repent and believe. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So what we learn from Daniel, at the very least in this little nugget of a section, is that your life is not your own. You and me, we are God's servants. And wherever he sends us, however we get there, is where we must go. And the question is, will we remain faithful in exile? Let me ask you, where are you today, friend? Brother, sister? What situation brought you here? What pains your soul? What circumstance is tempting you to doubt God? Will you trust in him today? Will you give your life to him, to King Jesus today, and find that just as God didn't fail or forsake Israel, neither will he fail nor forsake you? Come today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for this hope-filled message Thank you that as Daniel had to wonder, or perhaps as Israel had to wonder, is Babylon stronger, and did you forsake us? We do not have to wonder that. You sent your son, Jesus, who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with us to the end. We thank you. Help us, Father, to follow him. May we be faithful in exile. May we be content with what we have and where you have placed us. And may we look for the day when you come again. In Jesus' name.